Bible reading today is Revelation 3, 7 to 22 and can be found on page 1238. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of, uh, synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are, uh, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world and test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name's Matt, and I'm the senior pastor here at Trinity, and it's great to be back opening up God's Word with you after nine weeks off of preaching, my longest uh, stint ever. And I do just want to say how much I've been enjoying the sermon series on Revelation so far. I think Cam's been doing an excellent job, and there's not too many senior pastors who can head off to other churches to preach like I have been at Unley, taking uh, Proverbs there and then off on holidays and know that our just out of Bible college associate pastor will nail the opening up of the book of Revelation. I think uh, we should all be very thankful to God for Cam. And also a very big thank you to EV Church who have generously shared their work on Revelation with us, with the Bible studies, their daily reading guides and have put a lot of thought into this series. There was one more thank you kind of this week but it was more of a Thanks very much. Uh, as I read our Bible passage for the day, I say that because I think Jesus' words to the church in Laodicea, uh, that the entire church is to read and consider worldwide, are some of the harshest words in Scripture. The temptation is to water them down, perhaps point them at other Christians, other churches, and only give us a kind of moderate nudge. But as I've reflected on them this week, I think there is a real danger here that we need to see clearly. 
individually and corporately, we need to examine ourselves to see the attitudes and issues with our hearts that we might need to repent of. Then I want to paint a picture of how we can move forward together, avoid danger and encourage one another as we seek to live more intentionally and passionately for God's glory. So as always, I'd really encourage you to open up your blue Bibles on your seats today, if they're closed, and turn to Revelation 3, you'll find it on page 1238 of the Blue Bibles. We have today the last two letters to the church which provide for us a pretty sharp contrast. First to the church in Philadelphia, Philly, uh, John writes, verse 7, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, Revelation does actually make us work a bit to open up its meaning, but you can actually figure out quite a lot by yourself through careful reading. So I thought today particularly, I will share some of the process I go through, because the goal is I want you to be confident in reading Revelation for yourselves and to see where I'm getting this from. And if you're here just checking out who Jesus is, hopefully it's helpful to see how Christians try and read their Bibles well. So when we come to a verse like this, uh, we know from Revelation 1 that as the uh, book kicked off, this is Jesus speaking, he's asking John to write it down. So as we read, these are the words of him who is holy and true, I think to myself, that makes sense, that's Jesus. When then we read, who holds the key of David, I sort of think, hmm, that's an interesting thought, that seems an Old Testament uh, allusion there with uh, David being one of the great kings of the Old Testament. Then when we read, what he opens no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open, I'm thinking, I've got no idea <laughs> and I want to, uh, but I want to know because that's how we read our Bibles well. Someone smarter than me this week asked me, uh, what is the book in the New Testament that quotes and uses allusions from the Old Testament the most? I guess the book of Hebrews, which apparently comes in fifth, it's actually Revelation, which more than double of any other book, uh, quotes and uses allusions from the Old Testament the most. So I thought, ah, here we have this, key, you know, keys, doors, all this kind of stuff. I wonder if this is a reference from the Old Testament. So I grabbed my uh, study Bible, and, uh, which has got cross-references in it, and sure enough, this is a quote directly from Isaiah 22, 22. Easy one to remember. Um, so I read Isaiah 22, and I discover there that it's speaking of God's chosen leader, who amongst the time of great sin and idolatry in Isaiah's time, comes and is given authority to make decisions and take action on behalf of God. So, back in Revelation, this is Jesus speaking of himself as the one who is holy and true, the one who can act and make decisions on God the Father's behalf with great authority. But what's the door he's speaking about? It hasn't been mentioned before in Revelation, Isaiah doesn't really give us any clues. So I think, is it explained here somewhere in Revelation? Jesus mentions the door is closed to Laodicea in verse 20, but I think it's really chapter 4 verse 1, which if you've got your Bibles open, is there on the right page, that John's vision explains it. Revelation 4 verse 1, after this I looked 
And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So tentatively, I'm thinking, this is Jesus saying, I can open or close the door to heaven and no one else can override me on that. I think, sounds like the Jesus I know. So I'm happy to head on then. So verse 8, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Jesus is comforting them. He's saying he has placed before them an open door to heaven. You have an open door to fellowship with me, Jesus says to the church in Philly. He knows they have little worldly power and the Jews are firmly against them. Hence the kind of synagogue of Satan uh, comments. Persecution, we know from our context, is rising in the Roman Empire. Yet in the face of it, this little church in Philly did not deny Jesus. And Jesus loves them. We're told that at the end of verse 9. Because, verse 10, they have kept his command to endure all of this patiently. So Jesus tells them, hold on, verse 11, he's coming, persevere. And I'll bring, I'll bring you victory, Jesus says. He'll make them a pillar of strength. And he gives them many other words of encouragement, as explained so well in our kids' talk today. Philly is a church of little power, yet they have great heart, and Jesus loves them for it. Which makes the shift to Laodicea all the more jarring. Let's look at what Jesus has to say to them from verse 14. These are the words of the Amen, which means truly the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I've never really kind of quite got this one. I came to this one with a few questions. Because if you're like me, when you read it, you sort of think, well, surely hot equals good. You know, maybe it's kind of on fire uh, for Jesus. Maybe cold then equals cold to God. How can that be good? But why is Jesus seeming to say that lukewarm is even worse? Why does Jesus seem to be saying, affirm being cold to God is preferable? I think it doesn't make sense. Obviously, there's something more we need to understand here. So, time for some more investigation. And we actually know a lot, historically, geographically, and archaeologically, about heaps of things in the Bible. You don't need a theology degree. A good study Bible or commentary can quickly summarise the pertinent facts. I use the ESV Study Bible, not in my general reading, because I think study Bibles can kind of lead us to look for easy answers, but it's the first kind of reference I look at when I want to know some context. Good commentary uh, is also uh, helpful if you really want to get into a book. Here's one by Paul Barnett, Revelation, Apocalypse Now and Then, that I've found particularly helpful, and it's quite readable and accessible as well. But a quick read shows us a few helpful things that the first hearers of this letter in Revelation would have known that we, as we pick it up today, don't. 
Laodicea was on a road that was a great trade route, and it was also on a river coming down from the mountains, which further increased its wealth and prosperity. They also had a Roman aqueduct that brought water in from a nearby hot spring that was mineral rich. So everyone in Laodicea knew what it was to have cool, clear water coming down from the mountains. It was good to drink, it was refreshing, it helped make them rich. And they also knew how good hot water was, to be soothed in the hot springs, and we all know hot water's pretty handy. But as this aqueduct brought the hot springs to town, the water by the time it reached there was rather lukewarm, and full of minerals, it wasn't great to drink. You would, if you tried to drink it, spit it out. It was nowhere near as useful as hot. Which I think now highlights uh, a problem that we have to be aware of when we read our Bibles. That if we assume the Bibles use words and concepts exactly the same we do uh, today, we can run into a few problems. We think hot equals on fire for God, good. Cold equals cold towards God, bad. Whereas Jesus is simply saying, hot water's good, it's very useful, cold water's great, it's refreshing, lukewarm water is almost useless. If you try and drink mineral-rich, lukewarm water, you will want to spit it out. So Laodicea, and this is Jesus speaking, you are lukewarm in your faith. Jesus is not saying, before me or against me, it's fence-sitters that really get me fired up. I'd rather you be against me. And Jesus is also not saying there's two types of Christianity. You can be all hot and passionate, hands in the air on fire for God, or you can be one of those cool, kind of deep, uh, reflective ones, and that's good too. And please note my extraordinary self-restraint. I'm not sharing all my favourite Presbyterian jokes at this point. <laughs> Jesus is simply lining up Laodicea with language and images that they knew well and that we can find out in a few minutes. To say to them, to say to the church in Laodicea, you are doing the Christian life in a way that quite literally, if you look at the word Jesus used here, quite literally makes me want to vomit. Harsh words. So why, verse 17? There's a for there, not present in the NIV, which is why ESV makes for a good study Bible, because it leaves those things in. So the flow goes, essentially my summary, you make me want to throw up Laodicea, for, verse 17, you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realise you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. As I mentioned, they were a wealthy town and they were actually famous in the Roman world for being the ones when an earthquake struck and it's quite a earthquake-prone area. They were the only ones who didn't look towards Rome for the kind of disaster funds to rebuild. They said, don't worry, that's okay, we've got this, we've got the cash. They were that rich. And Jesus, though, looks at them with spiritual eyes, at their sort of spiritual heart, and says, actually, you're not. I can see what you're really like on the inside. Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. 
there's a self-deception going on here with Laodicea that Jesus says is due to their wealth and self-sufficiency, which is very consistent with Jesus' many warnings about wealth in his preaching. In Jesus' parable of the soils in Luke chapter 8, he warns the crowds about how to hear the gospel. As the seed, the word of God is sown, he says, some people are like soil, soil that has thorn bushes on it already. Here's what Jesus says of them in Luke 8:14, up on screen behind me. As Jesus explains, he says, the seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. It's possible for the gospel, this good news about Jesus' life, death and resurrection, and what that means for us, the Word of God to come to us when we receive it and begin to grow, yet we get choked out by riches and pleasure. I've been reading uh, Proverbs a lot this year, as you know, and I know many have as well, following along our sermon series. Proverbs itself has a lot to say about money as well, like this from chapter 30. Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonour the name of God. Now, doesn't that shed new light as Jesus teaches us to pray give us today our daily bread, which also gives us a bit of insight into the problem here. We pray the Lord's Prayer, but in nearly every situation, we're not actually looking for God to provide the food for that day, because we think the pantry's full, the wine's carefully cellared, and should we need anything, I can just pop down to Woolies. But Proverbs points out a much, much more serious problem, that wealth in and of itself not a bad thing, can cause us to disown God, to forget Him. No matter how your credit card is looking at the moment, we here sitting in this room today are the world's rich. We have enough wealth and government support to have real power. If your job's not fulfilling, you can study or make a change and get a new job that you like a lot better. The poor in this life are in a daily battle for life and death to find enough money, enough resources to put food on the table. If we get sick, we look to our pretty amazing by world standards health system, public and private, and it's a huge shock to us if the doctors say they can't fix us. The poor of this world see people they love dying from preventable diseases all the time. Riches and the pursuit of wealth can enchant us too and we have the power to pursue it. We study more, we work longer hours, we're entrepreneurial, all not bad things in and of themselves, but they can quickly trap us, either by making us too busy to pursue the things of God or in a flat-out rush to idolatry, pursuing pleasure and status rather than pursuing holiness, 
serving our brothers and sisters in Christ with great energy as we're commanded by Jesus, rather than pursuing the lost, those who don't know Jesus, for whom heaven and hell hang in the balance, without much more than a whimper from us. Yet ask us what to pray for, nah, we're all good. I'm busy, of course, the kids are all good, we've had a good holiday. Now, I'm not saying this is universally true of all of us, but hopefully you can start to see the great danger in wealth. As wealthy people in a wealthy country, we need to look at Jesus' words to Laodicea very carefully and take steps to avoid danger when we see it. We need to be hot or cold, useful to Jesus, faithful to Him, instead of being lukewarm. Kind of room temperature, if you like, looking suspiciously like everyone else around us who doesn't know Jesus. Without us even noticing, thinking, we're all good, thanks, Jesus. There's probably... uh, Well, I guess the real question to ask is, what's the danger for us as a church? What are the heart attitudes that we may need to repent of? Where might our wealth be enchanting to us, blinding us, tricking us into being lukewarm without noticing? Well, I think there's probably many things we could consider, but here's one that hit me really hard this week because I realised that I might inadvertently be putting us all in very real danger. Let me explain. I was at a pastor's lunch a few weeks back, put on by uh, brothers and sisters at City Reach who are doing some great work starting to plant churches here in our city. Uh, They'd flown in a mega church pastor from Texas for a week of events and uh, one of those events was to hold a pastor's lunch on a Thursday and once I heard that it was a, you know, Texan mega pastor speaking, it almost put me off going, Uh, but I thought, I really don't feel like some American telling us how they grew a church from four people to, you know, 10,000 in two Sundays and uh, coming here and telling us how to do ministry. (laughs) However, I went out of love for the City Reach crew And the guy was actually not at all what I was thinking. He was very, very good. And one line he said stuck with me. He said, in America, there's an almost unspoken agreement in a lot of American megachurches between their lead pastor and the community that goes something like this. The community comes. They pay enough money to pay for the big building, the great kids program, the excellent band and light and sound and... They can provide a great Sunday. And as they come, they validate the pastor's ministry. They've got 10,000 in attendance. The pastor can then have their own blog, run a big organisation, be on the speaking tour, write books. His ministry is validated. And in return, the pastor serves up light, easygoing sermons on how to live a better life and asks the very bare minimum from his people. Then they all drive home and pretend they're really on about the things of God. I thought, oh man, ouch. (laughs) Now the point of telling this story is not to laugh at Americans, we've had a few join our church uh, recently. (laughs) But to actually ask, how might that same issue play out here in Australia and in our church? 
As I've been reflecting on that comment since that lunch, and then turn my thoughts to this word to us from Jesus in the church in Laodicea, I sense danger. (laughs) Now, here's a few insights into me, if you don't know me. Uh, I'm told in 360 reviews that I'm fairly self-aware, but of course I could be very wrong about that. But consider uh, the combo of me as senior pastor of our church. I unashamedly say that numbers matter, and I stand by that, every number is a person who either needs to know Jesus or needs to grow to maturity in Christ within a local church. I'm also, by nature, an encourager. I think uh, Australian evangelicals kind of suck at encouraging, which is uh, unbiblical. I think the Apostle Paul is always giving thanks to people. He's not just thanking God for people, he's actually thanking people directly. Read a letter like uh, the book of Philippians and a lot of his letters. So I think when it's warranted, I want to thank people directly and I try and do the same. I try to be an encourager. I also think it's important for pastors not to lose sight of what it's like trying to run a business, trying to run a household, raise kids, work in an office, be a teacher, be a tradie and to be involved in church. I remember what it was like to run a young adults ministry for many years while having a corporate job and I think it's a good thing not to forget how that was. Now please misunderstand me, this is not, you know, that version of false modesty where I tell you about your weaknesses kind of question and, you know, when you go to a job interview and someone says, tell me about your weaknesses and you go, well, you know, I'm a workaholic and have a high attention to detail and, you know. (laughs) No, I actually think these traits are good and I stand by them, I'm owning them. But it struck me this week, who's the kind of guy most likely to build a growing church that plants more churches that by Australian standards, not by American, but by Australian standards is successful that actually has an excellent track record of financial partnership, like we have had over our five and a half years, who will, by their very nature, shy away from asking more and always empathise with what it's like to work full-time, run a household, who will always say thank you and want to be encouraging. Me! (laughs) Now, please listen very carefully at this point, I don't want to use a shotgun when I need to shoot more accurately with a rifle. There's one for Americans. (laughs) (laughs) Who I hope come back next week. (laughs) (laughs) There is a good and growing core to this church of people who really get what gospel ministry is about, what it looks like to be part of a church who do give sacrificially, who have given a lot of their time to go from one to two churches and to plant a church. And I want to say thank you. Please take this as a kind of a reminder for us all to kind of hear Jesus' words and consider issues of our heart, but please hear me saying thank you. But note my tendency. If left unchecked by the Word of God and without some deep self-reflection, my tendency as we grow and try and plant more churches 
is going to be to work the core harder and allow a growing crowd of people to stand around and watch others do ministry. And for me to kind of smile and nod along and have people say, I'm too busy, I'll just give, come when I feel like it. And I'll be the one to allow people to go home under the illusion that because they're part of a growing church, we really are all on about the things of God in life. And actually just go back into the week thinking about my household, my priorities. Any prayer points? Ah, nothing comes to mind. We're all good, thanks, Jesus. When in reality, I would be foolish to think that Jesus might not look at some of our hearts with the same clarity that he does with Laodicea and look into them and actually say, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Now I get this is a challenging word. If it's your first time here today or if you're just checking out who Jesus is, let me tell you it's not always like this. If you can get through today, I think you can get through any sermon, to be quite honest. But I hope you can see, even at this point, from Revelation, that in our wealthy, Western, civilised world, we are in real danger. I cannot preach faithfully on one of the most challenging passages in Scripture and send you home with a light, feel-good message. I do want each of you who consider yourself a Christian to go home and consider your own hearts, pray, and to ask Jesus to remove any self-deception and repent where you see sin. Particularly today, if you see in yourself the sin of just wanting to know what the bare minimum involvement is that I can have in my local church to feel safe like my afterlife insurance policy is sorted out. So I can now get on with pursuing wealth, pleasure and status in this world instead of actually pursuing the things of God. Now, I don't find this easy to say. In fact, I've found preaching at nine o'clock one of the hardest sermons I've ever preached. I couldn't stand on the door for the first time in ages and had to go lie down in the poking room. But please hear the warning, if that is in your heart, if you're thinking, I would just prefer a church that sets a low bar, I can go along and be reminded we're saved by grace anytime I feel like it and I don't want to help out, I just want the bare minimum. If that, if you discover that in your heart, I think the message today from Jesus is that you're doing a version of Christianity that literally makes Jesus want to throw up. but he gives us a way forward. Verse 18, this is Jesus speaking, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you might become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Jesus wants us not to chase the treasure of this world but to Get real treasure from Him, real life, 
often through hardship and sacrifice, gold refined by fire. He wants to give us his righteousness, white clothes to wear, as he puts it, in Revelation imagery, through his death on the cross for our sins. That's how we become right with God. If you're here just checking out who Jesus is today, that's at the heart of what we do. Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and exchanging our unrighteousness for his righteousness as a free gift. But he wants us to then go forward hungering and thirsting for that godliness, contentment, that righteousness to live it out today. And he wants us to be so shaped by his word and his spirit that we too can see the spiritual reality behind our lives and our world. But also see the grace of Jesus in this passage, the love of Jesus, even for those in his church that he really rips into. Verse 19. If you're kind of feeling this is hard to listen, as I'm finding it hard to preach, listen to verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, says Jesus, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So what does it look like to really live for Jesus, to be hot or cold in our world today? We've been kind of working as a network of churches this year to try and bring clarity to this so that we can all kind of work out how we can make our best contribution together to pursue it as a church family. What we've done is to think about the purposes of the Christian life that you see over and over again in Scripture, and we've expressed them under five words that start with M. Magnification, membership, maturity, ministry, and mission. We've just finished re-articulating them in recent weeks, and we now have the final version We're rolling out across all of our churches now. And the first is magnification. As I've said before, there's always one, if you try and think of five words that start with one letter, there's always one that's a bit of a a push. Magnification is it, mag as we call it. And I've printed it out, the purpose of the Christian life which we're summarising under mag in your leaflet. And I've also written about it in the leaflet letter. Tear off the perforations, take it home, stick it on the fridge... There's five to collect in the coming weeks. (laughs) But let's start with magnification, mag as we call it. Here's a summary of the purposes of God that we uh, see, that we've grouped together under mag, that we see in Scripture. Here it is. Living for God's glory is the first and most important purpose in the Christian life. We magnify the glory of God, Father, Son and Spirit as we orient our whole lives around serving and enjoying Him. This impacts our work, family, ambitions and all that we do. As a step you might like to take, come to Magnify Adelaide. It's our first tilt really as a network of churches helping us to work out how we can do this as a church better. To help more and more be the church that you come to on a Sunday 
And not only your mind has been challenged, but your hearts are lifted in wholehearted praise and worship of Jesus. And if you can't kind of make the day, come along to the worship and praise evening at the end. Belong, our membership course, which starts tomorrow night too, is a four-week run through the purposes of the Christian life. We just put two in one week. We've got newcomers signed up, but as Cam said, all are welcome. And there's plenty of people around the room today who have already been, if you want to chat, including a number of people who've been with us for a few years who have decided to come along in uh, previous iterations. Because we do not wish to be a lukewarm church. And whatever you do, do not let me lead you into lukewarmness. And whatever you do, please don't say in your heart, I think I'm just going to find somewhere else that's a little bit less full on. (laughs) And if you're exploring who Jesus is, the sermon is not directed at you, but please know as you consider Jesus, what you're being called to, a a wholehearted, whole-of-life response to Him. And know that this is actually really good for us. It's great. Jesus is not only the most wonderful saviour we can imagine, saving us from sin, saving us from death, bringing us back into God's family, but He's actually a great King to live for, who promises a life of enduring worth. Free righteousness is a gift to us that can be yours. You can know that as you stand before God... He will see you as righteous, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And Jesus can actually give us spiritual eyes to see the reality of the world as it really is. He's a great, great king, and a great life is on offer. But it might include suffering, sacrifice, and giving up much for the sake of the gospel. And if we do it well, we'll never have that kind of empty prayer list. Because if we're really pursuing, magnifying God's glory in all of life, if we're working on caring for each other and helping new people to us really feel like they belong here, and if together we're all trying to grow each other to maturity through God's Word and prayer, if we're considering, yes, our time is limited, yes, it is challenging in this life to balance all our responsibilities, but if we're really considering how can I make my best contribution to the life of this church as I minister to one another, And if we're looking with spiritual eyes and actually seeing the hundreds of thousands of people around us who desperately need to know Jesus, our prayer list will never be empty. We will never be lukewarm. We'll be hot or cold. Very useful, very practical to God, living out His purposes. And as we finish, hear Jesus' final words of encouragement to us today. To the one who is victorious, I will give them the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we, we feel today how confronting these words from Jesus are for every church to consider across the world and throughout time. Please, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, help us to discern them well in our own lives. Please help those who are tender of conscience not to over-apply them and to go away and feel weighed down. We also pray, Lord, that for those of whom some hardness of heart exists, please let them not wash over us. Might we consider Jesus' words to our church and be earnest and repent. Lord, please help us not to just grow churches through setting a low bar of which many can jump over. Please help us, Lord, to be clear in articulating the purposes of the Christian life. Help us to be good at asking people to join us, good at giving real responsibility and ownership over ministry to one another. Please, by your chief shepherding and the work of the Spirit, your word amongst us, our prayers, please let it all work together so that we might be a healthy church that is either hot or cold, but never lukewarm. Please do this great work amongst us for your glory. Please help us to orient our whole lives around living and worshipping you. We ask these things in Jesus' very precious and powerful name. Amen.